Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben. Welcome to Lean Blog Interviews. It's episode 471 for March 15th, 2023. I'm really excited to be joined again today by Dr. Randall Pinkett. To learn more about him and his new book, Data-Driven DEI, you can look for links in the show notes or go to leanblog.org slash 471. As always, thanks for listening. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Dr. Randall Pinkett. He's a returning guest. He joined us in episode 380 back in 2020. He was here with Professor Jeffrey Robinson, who was his co-author for the book, Black Faces in White Places. Today, I'm honored to be joined by him again to talk about his new book, his fifth. It's titled Data-Driven DEI, The Tools and Metrics You Need to Measure, Analyze, and Improve Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. It was released yesterday, March 14th. Before I tell you a little bit more about Randall, it's good to see you again. Thanks for joining us again. Hey, Mark. It's good to see you too. I appreciate the invitation. I'm looking forward to the conversation and just thankful to be back on the on the podcast. Yeah, well, thank you. I'm glad that you're here and you have a lot to share with us today. There's a lot more to learn from the book. So we're, we're going to just scratch the surface. I, I hope people will go um, check out the book. But if, if you don't know Randall, let's just try to summarize a little bit here. I mean, he is an entrepreneur, an innovator, a speaker, an author, DEI expert who's leading the way in different ways in business, technology, and equity for all. He's co-founder, chairman, and CEO of BCT Partners, which is a global multi-million dollar research, training, consulting, technology, and data analytics firm whose mission is to provide insights about diverse people that lead to equity. Um, he's among uh, all of his five degrees. He's a graduate of the MIT Leaders for Global Operations program. He is a Rhodes Scholar with a PhD also from MIT. And as we talked a little bit about this last time, episode 380, um, Randall was a winner of season four of The Apprentice. So um, a lot, uh, I can't quite cover it all. I hope people will go check out your full bio. Um, but congratulations again on the book, Randall. And, and maybe just start with a pretty open-ended question. You know, what, what was the inspiration for the book? Lots of things that you could cover and write about. It'd be good to hear kind of the origin story of, of, of bringing this book uh, to press. It's an interesting story on how this book came to fruition. I had produced a video after George Floyd's murder entitled The Seven Myths of Racial Equity. Mm-hmm. And it was subtitled Candid Conversations with a Black Businessman. And I got approached by a acquisitions editor at, at Wiley uh, who said, we'd love to convert that seven myths of racial equity video into, into a book. And uh, his name was Mike and, uh, and Mike and I proceeded to have some very, very uh, in-depth conversations about what was happening in that moment. We all remember what it was like after George Floyd's murder. And Part of what we were also discussing was, is that the right gap in the marketplace, myths of racial equity, or is there a different one? He's like, I looked at your background and you've got this 
eclectic mix of technology and data, MIT. Right. On the other hand, diversity, equity, and inclusion. You don't typically see that combination of, of, a, of a technology and data scientist combined with a diversity, equity, and inclusion strategist. Mm-hmm. And as we were dialoguing, he said, I think there's something else you should consider. And he came to me with the idea of data-driven DEI. Mm. Uh, so he said, there, there's nothing out there like it. It's, it's such a rich, fertile ground for some scholarly attention. And he's like, and he said, I believe people are genuinely wrestling with this issue of how to measure and what are the right tools to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion. So after all those conversations, we actually decided we would abandon the Seven Myths of Racial Equity Project, mm-hmm. reincarnate it as data-driven DI. And that's how the and then and then and then Mike left Wiley. <laughs> but his legacy remains. <laughs> I'm glad it kept going forward. I mean. That story, I mean, that that's the the thought process of an entrepreneur, I guess, of uh, of iterating, looking at the market, not just thinking about the book you could write, but trying to think a little bit more about the book you should write. It sounds like that was mm-hmm. really part of the thought process there. That's really interesting. Yeah, Mike Campbell. Shout out to Mike Campbell. Yeah. And I'm sure there's a whole team then that continued working with you, thankfully, to help uh, get you through the writing process. I mean, you you, you had the concept. I'm, I'm I'm curious then. I mean, you know, how much iteration was there through the writing process? You I know, mean, before we get into the details of of what is there in the in what what's there in the book. Mike was visionary, but little did I know what I had signed up for. <laughs> uh, this, this was the most difficult book I've ever written. And and as you mentioned, I've I've written five. Uh, I try to do topics justice and I try to make the reader's job easy. That is, I've done all the research for you. I've done all the scaffolding for you and I'm laying it out in a very practical, easy, approachable, relatable way. Uh, And and, and so the other gift that Mike gave me before, before he left Wiley was the my first cut at the idea of the book was targeting DEI leaders, DEI champions, chief diversity officers, folks who have some responsibility for improving diversity, equity, and inclusion. And then he challenged me again. This, I mean, we had some great dialogue. He said, I think you can target a broader audience than just the DEI traditionalist. I think you could target anyone meaning anyone who wants to improve their diversity, equity, and inclusion could be the audience. And how could they use data in order to measure their behavioral changes, their attitudinal changes, their capabilities, and et cetera. And so that took me back to the drawing board. I said, okay, Mike, let's go back to the drawing board. Let's not focus in on the DEI leaders. Let's focus on anyone who cares about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that made it significantly harder <laughs> significantly <laughs> yeah because now i have really two audiences my primary audience is anyone within the sound of my voice my secondary audience remained what was my original primary which is the dei leader so the book vacillates between what should people do and what should organizations do what should people do and what should organizations do and what the interesting thing is and i'm sure you'll agree is we so often talk about 
DI in the context of organizations. They have statements, they have missions, they have it on their websites. But if you can convince people to care, the organizational piece takes care of itself. Mm. It's like it's like lean. You know, if people care about lean, it, it just falls out in the organizational context because they're driving the agenda. And so right. in, in almost a circuitous way, in challenging me to focus on people, he actually made the organizational agenda easier. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned lean, and I, I was going to frame this question in the context of the role of a CEO. The board of directors, you know, all of this, all of them together. Of there's always debate and discussion around what what can really be delegated and what has to be driven. Whether mm-hmm. it's lean or safety or quality of saying, you know, going back to Dr. Deming, that quality is made in the boardroom. What what's your thought around you know how much a, a CEO really needs to own and take responsibility for uh, increasing DEI versus hiring someone, delegating it, making it a function. I love the question, Mark, and I'm going to answer it directly, and I'm going to answer, answer it a second time. Uh, I, I believe it, it has to be driven at the CEO level. It has to be, and I'll explain why. Uh, when I'm advising senior executives around DI, and, and I had some fascinating discussions behind the scenes with CEOs after George Floyd's murder, and as they were wrestling with how to respond, what to do, how to how to find their voice. I remember in one instance, uh, I was going into a town hall with a CEO mm-hmm. and I said to him, so you're in the driver's seat. He said, no, you're in the driver's seat. He said, I've never done this before. I said, okay, so you're in the passenger seat. He said, no, I'm in the back seat. <laughs> you're oh. driving the conversation. I, this is not my expertise. And I, I share that story because just like we, challenge CEOs, if not, no, I'm sorry, just like we expect CEOs to understand manufacturing, mm-hmm. understand operations, understand marketing, to understand sales, to understand all these disciplines, even HR, and the, and the list goes on. In the 21st century, you've got to understand diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. And DEI has a particular asterisk on it because the way you lead on DEI is by being authentic. Mm-hmm. It's by personalizing. It's by being transparent about your journey and all of the things that we talk about with, some might call it servant leadership, uh, but being humble and listening. And in the absence of a leader who can demonstrate those behaviors, DEI can only go but so far. Sure. Um, and so it is has to be driven, but it has to be driven from an authentic and personal place, because that's what DEI is all about. And a, a lot of CEOs um, have find it difficult to be vulnerable on any level to admit they don't know something about manufacturing or, or, or anything. A lot of them have risen through the ranks in a culture where you, you sort of at least pretend to be all knowing, and um, it's seen as you know maybe a weakness to. Um, not really um, deeply understand a topic, but then I think when it comes to DEI, I think you know there, there's there's even more fear of of uh, making a mistake. I think especially in the context of of issues that can be um, uncomfortable or awkward for some people to 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 talk about. I mean, do you have any thoughts on trying to help coach somebody, coach an executive through? taking some risks in the spirit of being vulnerable because it'll be, we hope, more helpful to do mm-hmm. that instead of being all-knowing? What, what, what do you think? 
Yeah, yeah DEI is, is, is paradoxical in that regard. The conventional, traditional model of leadership is I have to have all the answers and I'm not trying to show my hand for where I don't have the answers. D- DI turns that completely on its head. Mm-hmm. Servant leadership turns it on its head. Inclusive leadership turns it on its head and says, if you believe, and the research does bear this out, that it is not employee engagement that is the the the, the gold standard. It is feelings of inclusion and belonging that is the gold standard, mm-hmm. which is a higher order calling than just employee engagement. And we already know from all the work around lean and 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 operational efficiency that employee engagement was shown to lead to productivity and to retention and the list goes on. Well, inclusivity and belonging take that to the next level because now people are bought in. So if, if you believe in that and the research bears it out that you therefore want people to feel like they are included and they belong. Now it begs the question, well, what does it mean for that to happen? And what the research tells us is that humility and curiosity are two of the most two of the highest predictors for whether people on your team will feel like they belong. Humility says, I'm going to be forthcoming of what I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm going to sh- admit when I don't know what the solution is or how to approach it. And curiosity says, I want to understand how you see it mm. so I can mitigate my blind spot, so I can see it from different angles. And so it's that curiosity and that humility that people on your team then feel included, which means you get to all of what the research tells you about productivity, engagement, retention, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and so I, I coach people to say, first, you got to change your mindset. That's the first thing. As you think is as you do. You got to change your mindset. And I'm from the old school where it was considered leadership to not show your hand. Once you can change your mindset, then you can begin to get comfortable with this idea that my transparency liberates people on my team for their transparency. Mm. And then you're hoping to bring, I don't know if in this exact uh, case with the CEO you mentioned, to bring them from the back seat. (laughs) <laughs> the front seat. Did did you get that CEO? Was there a future town hall where the CEO yeah. felt comfortable driving? Yes, yes. That CEO is leading by example. Mm-hmm. And I sat in a meeting with his board of directors where he spoke comfortably, confidently, and eloquently about his personal journey around diversity, equity, and inclusion, and his commitment to the organization to be held accountable to making progress on those matters. So yeah, he he found his voice and is now strengthening that muscle of diversity, equity, and inclusion each and every day. It's a great transformation story. Yeah, well, it goes to show how everybody could use a coach, whether a CEO <laughs> on whatever topic, um, sounds like you really helped that CEO out as, as you do others. Um, so I wanna ask a question. This is actually a question posed by a friend of mine, Deandra Wardell, who, who also shares um, that, that, as you called it, rare combination of a background, Lean Six Sigma, and also a lot of work that she does on the DEI front. She has a, a, a website, rootcauseracism.com, that I want to mention, and mm-hmm. go check, uh, have people go check that out. 
Dr. Pinkett, what DEI data points do you recommend using to gain buy-in from leadership or decision makers to prioritize DEIA initiatives and programs, especially when there is an assumption that the company is doing enough to support DEI because they've participated in unconscious bias and other DEI training? Mm, Great question. Great question. So I'm going to try to keep it simple. and. I'm going to focus on the D, the E, and the I. And actually, in a different order, I'm going to focus on the D, the I, and then the E. Mm-hmm. For, for, for the D, we are essentially talking about representation and making certain that we are disaggregating our representation numbers by identifiers like gender and race and ethnicity and disability and sexual orientation and by level. Mm-hmm. And by level. So I got to know where I stand at the executive level, at the mid-manager level, at the entry level. And I got to disaggregate across all of those. And I got to scorecard every division and department on, the, on, on those lines. So they know where they stand. And there's also a healthy competition that no one wants to be at the bottom of that mm-hmm. of that uh, that scorecard. That's the D. Mm-hmm. For the I, you have to have some measure of your culture and your climate. Call it an inclusive, an inclusivity index. It could be a composite of a survey that you're administering. Now, again, I want to be clear. What I'm not talking about is your employee engagement survey. That's the old school. Uh-huh. Employee engagement does not go far enough from a diversity, equity, and inclusion perspective to ask people, do you feel like you belong? Mm. Do you do, do you do you feel like your voice is heard? And so an inclusivity index or survey gives me a measure of culture and climate and how people are experiencing my organization. Uh-huh. And that too must be disaggregated by all of the dimensions I described a moment ago. So I understand that there are differential experiences. Hospitals have been doing this for years uh-huh. in terms of disaggregating patient satisfaction or patient outcomes data to know where are our disparities. Right. And that's kind of the, the metaphor here to know where I might need to focus my energy to close those gaps and to the, the and so that's the i mm-hmm. then to the e there's two sides to the coin for the e the first side is looking within the organization the other side is looking beyond the organization within the organization it's are there inequities that need to be addressed do i have a pay equity gap mm-hmm. do i have an advancement gap a time we'll call it time to promotion to be more uh data-driven in my language, time to promotion. Is there a gap in time to promotion? Is there a gap in pay equity? Which means I must conduct a series of equity studies to figure out where are their inequities to then target my initiatives at closing those equity gaps. Those, and then that's the internal piece. Then lastly is the external E. Doesn't matter what your industry, your market, your sector, uh-huh. you have a customer. You could be a nonprofit, you could be a, a corporation, you have a customer. The question I ask is, how well do you understand the differential experiences of your customers? And I'll keep this simple. Let's just go with net promoter score. Uh Uh, An NPS that says, would you recommend our product and or service to somebody else? Mm -hmm. And disaggregate that by all the identifiers I mentioned before to see, do we have an inequity or a gap and how well I'm being responsive to certain groups, certain communities, certain demographics, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And that's the D, that's the I. And that's the keep it simple. Yeah. Well, thank you. And thank you again, Deandra, for um, the question. I mean, um, I guess, you know, for for my own 
follow-ups there. I mean, when, when, when you talk about the gap, like to me, I mean, that that's Toyota language. They, they talk about defining a problem as a gap between where performance needs to be and where it actually is. Like it's the starting point of like, have we properly defined the problem in a way that's not just like a big, vague concern, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, might say people say, um, I think we have an equity and I think we have a diversity and or an equity or an inclusion problem. Like that's maybe just very uh, a big, vague concern and, and as the way Toyota might describe it. And then being able to, you know, kind of narrow that problem down and having a measurable gap, like to me and hopefully to listeners here on a lean podcast, that, that sounds like an important first step in, in, in any good problem solving. Absolutely. And, and let me make sure your audience is clear on the difference between a disparity and an inequity. A disparity is a difference. Mm-hmm. So if you and I take the same medicine and we have a different reaction to that, it's a disparity. Mm-hmm. And we expect that certain medicines might be more responsive for you and certain medicines might be more responsive to me. We, we, don't, we don't necessarily lament over a disparity. It's a difference. Mm-hmm. Men and women respond to different drugs differently. That's a disparity. Right. And inequity implies something unfair is going on behind the scenes. Mm. So if you and I are both working in different roles, I'm a nurse, you're a doctor, we expect a disparity in our pay. Doctors earn more than nurses. No surprise there. But if you and I are in the same role, we're both nurses, mm-hmm. doing the same thing, and you earn more than me, that's an inequity. Right. With the same experience and everything else, all other things. Exactly. Control for everything else. Once we control for everything else, if there's still a difference, now it's no longer a disparity. It is an inequity. And when we talk about the E, the equity, we're talking about inequities, not disparities. I want folks to be clear about that. Yeah, well, thank that's that's a great clarification. And 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 just to I can't help it but to think a little bit in this lean problem solving language. What I hear you saying when we check this is. The disparity is a fact. It's a measurable difference. Inequity is maybe getting closer to causes. That mm-hmm. inequity, mm-hmm. We, we identify disparity. Now we start thinking about the current state and causes. Fair to say inequity could be a cause of a disparity. And that doesn't necessarily get us to a root cause of right. the inequity. You're, yes, that's right. To get to the root cause is to understand what is there happening that's unfair that is leading to this difference that we call an inequity as a result of the fact that there must be some unfairness? Because when I control for every other variable, all I'm left with is this difference. Something's going on. Mm-hmm. Somehow someone's being denied opportunity. Someone's not being paid equitably. We have to unearth that, understand it so that we can then address it. So yeah, in the parlance of lean, inequities lead you on an investigation to find root causes. And then one other thing, just a, a, a reflection, or um, you, you talk about disparities in patient safety data and how hospitals will look at that or look for disparities in um, quality outcomes. Um, I, I, it's not firsthand experience, but I do know there are organizations, healthcare organizations that are starting to look at employee disparities. First off, looking at employee safety, um, injury rates and lost work time, and back to data. You know, instead of safety, it's just a broad um, concept. So um, hopefully we'll see more work in in that direction. Uh, I probably can't say it's every health system yet, but there are some that are leading the way. I'm sure there's a lot to learn from them. 
Yeah, and there's an interesting interrelationship between what you described in our earlier conversation about leading and creating environments of inclusivity. I mean, we think about high reliability organizations, HRO, um, which basically says we're highly reliable that when we perform a certain function or activity, that it is, it is repeatable and it's safe. Uh, and to create a high reliability organization, say in healthcare, you have to create an environment where people are comfortable calling out what might be something that's not safe. Uh-huh. For example, studies have shown people have known that you're about to operate on the wrong limb and didn't say anything. Right. Because it's not in an environment where they're comfortable challenging the power structure, the physician, whomever's, they, they must know what they're doing. Although it looks to me like that's not the right limb. Right. <laughs> They've been conditioned to not speak up if they tried before and they got in trouble. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So there's this wonderful interrelationship between creating environments of inclusivity and belonging where people are empowered to speak up or to see something and say something which creates safer, more harmonious, more equitable organizations at this, all at the same time. Yeah. So it comes back. I mean, I, it makes me think of a phrase, um, psychological safety. You know, well do, do, do people feel safe? Well said. You can't just lecture them. You know, you, you, you should be brave. Like, I just thought that, that doesn't seem to work. <laughs> it does not um, work. <laughs> it's, it, it, well, I'm sorry. No, it does not work. I was agreeing with you. <laughs> it does not work. Um, but when you think about data, like I'm just, it, it makes me wonder if 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 there's a trap. Um, let me kind of paint a scenario. It's probably not too far fetched. Of you know, organization, let's say well intended, puts out some sort of survey. They're trying to look at um, you know an inclusivity index, and they're asking people to fill out an anonymous survey. And I know in a lot of workplaces, people do not believe that the the survey is anonymous, which can be um, a barrier, but you know, or, or we're encouraging people to report problems. If, if you're being discriminated against or mistreated, we want you to report it. We want you to speak up. But without a foundation of psychological safety, we might see an underreporting, just as we see underreporting of patient safety incidents. And somebody might draw the wrong conclusion of like, well, we asked people to speak up. We're That's not right. getting any reports. Therefore, everything must be okay. Mm, maybe mm. not. No, you're right on point. And when we conduct our diversity, equity, and inclusion assessments to get the evidence for where are you on your journey so we know where we can go. And we're doing surveys and we're doing focus groups and we're doing interviews. Everything you just talked about is exactly what arises along that assessment path. Mm -hmm. Are we getting honest and forthcoming responses to the survey? Do people feel like they can give us their true lived experience so that we have a real depiction of what is their lived experience. So we're going into the survey telling people, we're a third party, it's anonymous. We're not gonna disclose the data. We're not going to uh, 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 compromise anonymity or privacy or security. We're gonna aggregate the results so no one can be identified by their identifiers. There's only one Latina woman in your department. We will not disclose the responses of Latina women. Yeah. We go to all these links in focus groups to say this will be anonymous. You know, we're going to create this safe space all for the goal of trying to get to the truth. And it's funny because it's a play within a play. For the most challenged organizations who need our help are the most challenged in getting people to tell us what the problems are. And so we've learned a variety of techniques to hopefully 
maximize response rates and maximize psychological safety to piggyback off your words that can get to the heart of the matter, get to the root causes. Mm-hmm. So Randall, I want to ask one other question. There's there's all kinds of measures here. Um, there's measures of the underlying situation or condition or experiences. And then you know there's maybe attempts to measure or gauge the effectiveness of a DEI initiative. You know, you 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 point out only one in five companies measures DEI effectiveness. What what, what are your thoughts on um, on, on on why that is? Do, do people think it's it, it can't be measured, or they're they're just they're just not getting there? So I want to I want to quote Deming since you brought in Deming before. Um, I wrote, I wrote. I actually wrote this in the book. Uh, people often attribute the phrase "if you can't measure it, you can't manage it" to Deming. And actually, his exact words were, "It is wrong to suppose that if you can't measure it, you can't manage it." Right. Um, and 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 therein lies the juxtaposition of. DEI on one hand, which for some reason, when we start having conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion, people somehow translate that into a a quota Mm. or something that's too touchy-feely for us to be able to put numbers around. Mm -hmm. And both are disastrous assumptions. The the first, that uh, it's a quota belies everything we know about making progress. We put a goal on everything we do in business. Manufacturing, yield, Mm -hmm. take your pick. DI should be no different. Mm -hmm. If 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 we're serious about it, it should be no different. So the assumption that uh or the uh the approach or the argument that it, it cannot be measured and therefore cannot be managed is a, is a, is a, is a, is a falsehood. But the second one that says, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, we're trying to enact a quota is also a falsehood. Mm-hmm. I'll just take recruiting and hiring. For example, if I want to hire the best and the brightest, then I want to cast the widest possible net. Right. And if my data tells me that I'm only recruiting from certain places, only getting certain types of candidates, then it behooves me to cast a wider net. And I'm not saying put a hard number on that. I'm saying put a goal on that because if we're doing poorly with this group, in order to get better, I got to set a goal to get better with that group. So not a quota, a goal. And so both are are necessities in order to get measurable improvements for some reason. DI yeah. falls victim to both falsehoods. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's not just the, the goal, it's doing the work to close the gap. That's you right. know, I, I think a lot of a lot of times there's this old management mindset of um, well, I'm I'm gonna set a goal and I'm gonna, you know, lecture, browbeat, threaten, you know, do all these things. I'm like, I don't care how you do it, just hit just hit <laughs> the goal, as opposed to, you know, maybe more of um, you know, a data-driven problem-solving process where we can mm-hmm. actually look at what are the right specific actions instead of just telling people to try harder within the existing system. I mean, I, there's, I think this might have actually been attributed more correctly to Deming. And thank you for pointing out the, uh, the often misquoting of Dr. Deming. Um, oh, let me get my tra- train of thought back to the other um, 
expression. Oh, uh, the the idea of every every system gets the results that it's designed to get. Mm-hmm. I think might be kind of an appropriate phrase. I'll, I'll, I'll let me tell you a story and get your reaction to it. Um, I was at a conference. I don't want to say where, when, what the conference was about. Um, there was a, a session about DEI. And again, I don't want to identify even by describing who they you know, anything about them. But anyway, there was a comment made um, about, you know, like basically, well, um, you, you can't fault us for the gap in hiring certain groups of people because we're not getting the applicants. So what can we do? And I was a little dumb. I'm not an expert in this, but, <laughs> but I was a little gobsmacked of like, wait a minute, is this this is the DEI session, right? Like that, <laughs> that seemed kind of like, you know, vic- victim language of like, well, what can we do? I'm like, well, there are things we can do. How do we how do we cast that wider net? What are yeah, give us some examples, maybe? Yeah, and and another phrase that's 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 loaded affirmative action. Um, let me put aside the legal interpretation and and the societal debate around affirmative action, and let me focus solely on the words. Being affirmative about taking action. <laughs> Being intentional about doing something. Like that's what it's meant to com- com- communicate. Yeah. It's gotten lost completely. Oh, right. <laughs> and You're right. So, yeah. right, right. And so 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 to your point about not just setting a goal, but working toward the goal, it is unacceptable to throw our hands up in the air. Again, which we can, which we which we'll do for DI, if we're talking about, oh, we have this um, big, hairy, audacious goal around product introduction, big, hairy, audacious goal around marketing and sales. Everyone gets energized. Mm-hmm. How can we go after it? Let's let's dig in our heels. We're not getting the recruiting population we want or the pool we want. Oh, they're not they're not they're not, they're not applying. Oh. You know, they need to go to our website. Oh, <laughs> where, where, where do we go wrong with this? So uh, examples are, are not rocket science. Mm-hmm. If you're only recruiting at Harvard and MIT and Yale, maybe you should consider Howard and Morehouse and Spelman. Right. You know, if you don't have any employee resource groups that give diverse employees a place to feel like they can see a reflection of themselves, then maybe you might want to experiment with that. If you've done no organization-wide training around how to acclimate people to the language and the strategies of diversity, equity, and inclusion, you might want to try that. And if you've never done a town hall or what we would call a courageous conversation Mm -hmm. around a difficult, sensitive topic like our democracy or the Me Too movement or racial injustice, which we would never touch 20, 30 years ago. That was, again, that's the old school. You wouldn't even touch that conversation in the workplace. But now we're saying, no, you need to have that conversation because the only way we get to greater understanding is with less misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. And the only way we get to less misunderstanding is about having dialogue, not debate or discussion, but dialogue that allows us to explore how we all see things differently. So there's just a few examples of things that folks can do to yeah. be affirmative and taking action around closing the gap we've been talking about. Right. Yeah. Be a problem solver. Take action. I, I don't like the victim language. From, you know, sometimes you hear it from executives um, on, around different goals, different 
dimensions of performance. And um, like, uh, that's, that's not, that's to me, that's not helpful. That's not leadership. You know, you've got to um, help inspire action and, and creative action um, to, to, to try to help close those gaps. But so, you know, uh, back to the question of, you know, measuring DEI effectiveness, um, there's a question of how many are trying. And then there's probably a question of how the best way to measure it. I, I imagine you, you would point it toward closing these gaps as opposed to just asking, well, how do you feel about the DEI program, right? Oh, without a doubt. And it's all of the above. Um, it is making sure that we have a representative workforce. That's the D. And that begs the question, what's my benchmark? Um, you could benchmark against the communities where your facilities are located. You could benchmark it against the broader societal population, but you need to have a benchmark so you know and are comparing apples to apples. I wouldn't expect a, a company headquartered in North Dakota to necessarily have an employee base that reflects the same population of Chicago. I just would not expect that, or Illinois, for, for, for to put it at the state level. Mm -hmm. So that's 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 the D. For the I, it is, again, asking people what their lived experience is. How are you experiencing the culture? But then because I'm dis aggregating that not only by demographics, but also by department and division. Okay, so where am I doing the worst around how people are experiencing, not only in terms of groups, but also divisions and departments. And I got to now to the discussion around root cause. Why is it that in my manufacturing plant, I have the lowest inclusivity, but in my finance and accounting department, I have the highest inclusivity. Like What's happening in accounting and finance that I need to bring over to manufacturing? And what do I need to stop doing in manufacturing that they might be able to learn from accounting and finance? Like, like that's what the data begins to unearth is those kinds of dynamics, which if you're looking at aggregate numbers or averages, one of the books I cite in my book is the end of average, because average averages obscure the underlying reality. Yeah. Only when we disaggregate, only when we stratify, do we understand differentials in people's experience. That's the I. Then the E, we've talked about that. It's identifying where are the inequities? Is it pay? Is it advancement? The list goes on. And then the hard work is trying to then root out, well, what do we need to do? So for example, an advancement gap. Okay, well, then maybe when we're doing performance evaluations, uh, we need to look at ways that we are being more objective in how we're evaluating talent because we know performance evaluations can be notorious for being subjective, right? I think somebody is a good fit for the culture and you don't. What, is, what does that mean? Good fit for the culture. What does that mean? <laughs> well, let's break it down. Does that mean team oriented? Okay, I can, I can observe team orientation. Does it mean a risk taker? Okay, I can observe behaviors of somebody who's a risk taker. But if I just say cultural fit, Houston, we have a problem. So we have to be subject, um, um, objective and not subjective in our criteria. Be clear on how we will evaluate the criteria and then make sure we're all aligned that we evaluated the criteria the same. Now I have mitigation in the bias in evaluating performance, which will close my equity gap in advancement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you, you say, you know, one in five companies are measuring DEI effectiveness and only 9% say DEI programs are very effective. Like it seems like there's a big gap there, not just uh, are we measuring it, but when we are measuring it, there's a gap in effectiveness. What, 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 what do people, 
point to as, as reasons why they, they would not say their program is very effective? For either of two reasons. And the second, it's going to sound as if I'm being uh, facetious. Um, the first is they don't, they don't know. I'm sorry. The first is they're not seeing measurable improvements. Uh -huh. And the second is <laughs> they're not measuring it. So they don't know if they're making measurable improvements and they're going off of subjectivity what people feel, what people think. And, and, and I understand that there is a, 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 an organically natural subjective element to DEI. I mean, we're talking about feelings in, at some level. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but I think we also have to acknowledge that it's, this, is, this is very difficult work. Um, and chief diversity officers are often under-resourced, um, not empowered, and ill-positioned, under-resourced, low budgets, not empowered. They don't have much control over the other functions needed to move the needle on the things that matter. And, uh, and, then, and then lastly, ill-positioned, not reporting into the CEO. Mm. You give me those three factors and you're asking me to lead? I can't lead. Mm -hmm. I, can't, I can't do it. So it's elevating DI, it's empowering DI, it's properly budgeting DI, like we do any other function that where we want to make improvements so that we can see the effectiveness of the work. So I actually often, there's been a lot of debates around the effectiveness of training and ERGs. Again, research has shown that when done right, we can see measurable improvements. My critique is not of the work being done by DI practitioners, my critique is of organizations not sufficiently budgeting, empowering, and positioning DI to do the work that's being asked to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think a lot of what you talk about there is the same conversation people could have about, let's say, lean in healthcare. How many are measuring the effectiveness of their quote-unquote lean program? How many of those would say that program is very effective? And then the first thought that comes to mind is like, well, wait a minute. Part of the trap is it being a program instead of the way we do things around here. Yeah. So yeah. And that, that also bounces back to DEI. It does. And, and as you know, and as your audience knows, what lean does benefit from though is lean was always built upon a foundation of statistics mm -hmm. and numbers and data and language around root cause. Like there's a, there's a body of language and, uh, we'll call it scholarship underpinning lean that has always been about data and numbers and statistics. DI has come through a different tradition to arrive at where it is. And that's why data-driven DI, I say humbly, is I believe a valuable contribution to the DEI agenda because it is very intentional about its embracing of statistics, quantitative, qualitative machine learning, artificial intelligence. Like we go in in this book, I go in in this book on all of the the, the uh, traditionally numerical quantitative aspects of DEI that can sometimes get lost in the dialogue. Yeah. And in the book, I mean, we, we can go back to problem solving methodologies or, or cycles back to Dr. Deming, you know, the Deming cycle of uh, 
PDCA or PDSA, whatever language you want to use, um, Six Sigma and Demaic. And you lay out in the book, and, and obviously people can find a lot more detail there in the book of you know this five-step process, but the way it's drawn is uh, a cycle. <laughs> so tell, tell, tell us about, about that. No, I, I, I know there was no accident around it being a cycle. Right. No, no accident, and uh, I'm I'm revealing my uh, my roots in in manufacturing <laughs> and yeah. and leaders for global operations at MIT. Uh, just like PDCA and all these uh, methodologies that underline lean, I, I see DEI through the exact same lens. It is a never ending cycle of watch my phrase continuous improvement. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no surprises here, right? Yeah. Uh, and 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 I in, in, intentionally uh, drew out a, a visual of a cycle mm-hmm. because it, it 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 marries this idea of continuous improvement with a never-ending journey. Mm-hmm. That the journey for more diversity, equity, inclusion has no destination. It it, it is ongoing. It, it is one where we can always learn more, grow more, expand more, do more, etc. Um, and the five-step process is is built around uh, the, the letter I. Mm-hmm. Uh, DEI uh, incentives is where it begins. Asking the question, what's your motivation? Then DEI inventory, which is the assessment to know where you stand. Then DEI in, uh, initiatives or rather imperatives to know what your priorities are. Then my favorite one, DEI insights. How can you look to best practices or promising practices to know what works? Then it's DEI initiatives. What are you going to do? That's the fifth step. What are you going to do? And then lastly, DEI impact. How can you measure the effectiveness of your work? And then it continues and continues and continues. Yeah. I mean, you know, when when, when you set big, hairy, audacious goals, for example, um, you know, I think of uh, the late Paul O'Neill, who had been CEO of Alcoa, very similar in his thought process to Don Davis, you know, who taught at, <laughs> at MIT in the LGO program, um, former CEO of Stanley Tools. Um, Paul O'Neill would would have this you know big hairy audacious goal of zero harm. He would say nobody mm-hmm. should be hurt who comes to work, and you can see the data that shows they never got to zero, but they started. I mean, you can see the chart. They they were better than average, but that wasn't good enough for Paul O'Neill. And you could see this curve of I don't you know forty fifty percent reduction every year. Um, it was a continuous sustained intentional effort. And, you know, it seems like there's a parallel if we want to aspire to zero harm, meaning zero discrimination, zero mistreatment, zero disrespect, zero inequity. Um, sometimes that scares people. I'd be like, okay, well, no, that I, uh, we're not going to get there. So why, why try? I hear people react that way to a goal of zero harm for workers, zero harm for patients. How, how would you encourage somebody to not be scared off? I'm not, I'm not from from a big, hairy, audacious goal when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I, I love I love the question, and it's interesting because even as you cited the example of zero harm, my sense is that that would be more palatable, albeit it has its own dimensions of scary, but more palatable than if we were to say zero percent on discrimination or zero. Zero percent on harassment mm-hmm. uh, and other um, equity-related issues, and, and my, my response to folks would be much like any other aspiration that we have. Let's shoot for the stars and not the mountaintop. Yeah. 
if you shoot for the mountaintop and you don't make it, you'll fall to the bottom of the mountain. But if you shoot for the stars and you don't make it, you will fall to the top of the mountain. Let's pleasantly surprise ourselves with what we might accomplish or what we will accomplish when we set a big, hairy, audacious goal. And business is littered with stories uh-huh. of people who had big, hairy, audacious goals and accomplished them. What's that old phrase? The only people who change the world are those who are crazy enough to think that they can do it. So I said, let's be crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a good, in a good, a good way. And, you know, I'm um, just aiming, aiming high. Um, you know, there's a, I might be paraphrasing. Um, Vince Lombardi, football coach. If we aim for perfection, we might reach greatness. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And you know, I think part of the the Paul O'Neill dimension was aiming for. He, he would use this phrase. It fits perfectly at MIT for you know the theoretical limits of performance, <laughs> but meaning goals like zero or a hundred percent. Like it's really not as complicated as the, the words. Um, might sound and 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 using that goal as you used uh, the word earlier, energizing. How a goal can be energizing, and mm-hmm. I, and I think part of his leadership genius was aiming high, helping people actually change the system instead of just telling people, "Hey, be careful, don't get hurt." Mm-hmm. Um, but but really aiming toward. Um, encouraging and celebrating progress instead of creating more of that fear-based punitive approach. I think that's where sometimes people are afraid of an audacious goal because they think, well, I'm going to be punished if I don't reach it. Mm -hmm. That that, that doesn't have to be the case. What what are your thoughts around, you know, um, aiming high, celebrating progress without, without losing sight of the top of the mountain, as you put it? Yeah. I mean, I'm going to riff off, you know, your, your narrative, People are not afraid of failure. People are afraid of the consequences of failure. So if you can remove the consequence and say it's okay to fail, it's okay if you don't make the goal. But what I want to see, I want to see us take some risks. Mm -hmm. I want to see us innovate. I want to see us try something new. I want to see us think it sounds so colloquial and cliche out of the box or that there is no box. Uh, and so, I'm, and so, as a leader, it's saying to the team, "I'm giving you the space yep. to make mistakes, but I'm challenging you to aspire to this goal. I'm here to uh, to say we're all in this together. But what we can't have happen is to be, is, is to operate from a place of fear. Uh-huh. We have to operate in our strength to say, while it is big and hairy and, and audacious." It's only when we set these big, hairy, audacious goals that we can do something greater than we could do apart from one another. And, that, and that, that's leadership. Like, that, that, that's the essence of leadership is galvanizing people toward that goal. Whether it's sports, it's business, or whether it's in your home. <laughs> yeah. Very well said. So, again, we're joined today by Dr. Randall Pinkett. His new book available now, Data-Driven DEI, The Tools and Metrics You Need to Measure, Analyze, and Improve diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and uh, This might end up being um, the last question here, but you, know, you, you talked earlier at the beginning of the episode of your intended audience and, 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 and helping people who are convinced that we need to make more progress moving forward with DEI. Maybe they're struggling to figure out how to do that. How much of the book is targeted toward 
let's say people trying to go from a good to great situation versus an organization where the leaders aren't convinced. Um, are, are, are you writing for people who, who need that boost or is there an opportunity to try to, if you will, convert some people to realizing that that DEI is a strategic business imperative? Yes, I'm a, I'm a big basketball fan. And uh, my wife often uses this phrase about people going hard in the paint, you know, which is a, a, a metaphor for a basketball player going, you know, down low to the basket trying to score. And uh, to use her phrase, I go hard in the paint in the first chapter for why you should care about DEI. Mm-hmm. I believe we've done an excellent job of articulating the organizational case, the business case for DEI. And there's been tons of studies by McKinsey and others articulating the business case. What I don't think we've done as good a job of is articulating what I call the personal case for DEI. No, the the most popular radio station on the planet is WIFM, What's In It For Me? (laughs) And so I go hard in the paint in that first chapter to say, if you're on the fence, if you're wrestling with whether this thing matters or whether you should care, I'm going to put aside why your organization should care. And I'm going to go and talk directly to you for why you should care. And that could be from your head or from your heart. From your head, it will lead to advancement over others. It'll lead to more compensation than others. But if I want to go to the heart, because it's the right thing to do, because it creates a more uh, valuable life experience, uh, because it makes you a better, a better global citizen. And if you're in a position in an organization, it will make you a better leader, a more inclusive leader, a more responsive leader, a more effective leader. The list goes on and on. So I try to articulate the personal case for DEI because to the to where we started, if I can convince people to care, the organizational case is made. Well, I know the book is uh, is going to help people move forward in 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 that direction, move uh, closer to closing you know the gap with not not you know uh, not just the data driven approach, but the you know kind of methodical process for closing those gaps. Um, you know, it's really exciting to see this come together uh, in the book. So you can learn more about the book, Data Driven DEI at datadrivendei.com. I'll put links in the show notes to Randall's full bio and um, his website and the book, the new book, Data Driven um, DEI. So Randall, thank you so much for um, being a guest today. Maybe let me, let me just ask the obnoxiously open-ended question here. If there's anything you'd like to add, um, give you the last word. I appreciate it, Mark. And what, what I'll say is this, we, we, we're seeing uh, a watershed uh, of innovation happening in our present day, whether it's uh, you know, chat, GPT, uh, AI, natural language processing, there's all these sophisticated tools. Uh, and, and then when I first got into DEI, uh, I and others would, would say, we're trying to get DEI into our DNA into the organization's DNA, into our personal DA. And now I'm also mindful that while we want to make sure we get DEI into our DNA, that we also keep our DNA into DEI, that the humanity that we all represent, the ability for ourselves to relate to each other does not supersede what data or machines or tools can do. It has to lead with people. 
It has to be our DNA that leads in DEI in order to make sure that what I believe is becoming a more fractured society uh-huh. that's more divided along any number of lines one could cite. While I might sound biased in this belief, I believe DEI can be a, a an incredible asset to stitching together the fabric of our society that's right now tearing at the seams. So I'm hoping people do take this book to heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean that literally, like for them to personalize this for their own journey, that we can all see ourselves as agents of change, not only for ourselves and our organizations, but for our society. Well said, Dr. Randall Pinkett. Thank you again for being a guest here on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate your voice. Appreciate your work. And thanks for having me back. Well, thanks again to Dr. Randall Pinkett for joining us today. His new book, Data Driven DEI, is available now. You can look for links in the show notes or go to leanblog.org slash 471 to order your copy and to learn more about Randall and his work. Thanks again to Deandra Wardell for being here today. You can learn more about her at deandrawardell.com or rootcauseracism.com. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.